0: Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast, research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us.
1: Are you ready, Steve?
0: I'm always ready.
1: Are you ready, Mark? I believe I am. (laughs) Okay, good. Okay, so to get this thing kicked off, I am Amber with Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit association based out of Westlock, Alberta. So tonight, we're very excited to have Mark Schatzker with us. He's a well-known writer, and if I remember correctly, played a part in getting Dr. Richard Bazinette to start studying the fa- fatty acid profile of grass-fed beef versus conventionally raised. I've been reading Mark's most recent book, The End of Craving, and I can tell you honestly that it has me looking a lot more closely at what I'm eating and why. And with that being said, Steve, do you want to introduce Mark and talk a little bit about Greener Pastures Ranching?
0: Yes, you bet. I'm really excited to have Mark here too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, past information. I've I've heard his name lots over the years, and and uh, really excited to to dig into this. I don't have a lot of uh, intro on him. I'm going to let Mark do that uh, himself. Uh, I'd like to thank the Gateway Research Organization for being a part of this, and they they've uh, they jumped on board here with us two years ago. Um, we started this up because we thought that the networking was missing covid had taken away all our conferences and the biggest part that i thought was missing was actually the networking with farmers cuz over the years probably the last 20 years that's been the majority of my education is just going to conferences and talking to people right that networking was was so missed so i remember i was doing some presentations and seminars where you know zoom platforms and you didn't see the people. You didn't talk to the people. You were talking to a dead screen and it just was so impersonal doing a a conference. So then we just started up Wednesday night networking. It was just networking. We didn't want to do any presentations. We'll just have another topic and another presenter or another speaker. And we just have a Q and A. So that's what we're going to do tonight and uh, excited to dig into some questions with Mark here. Um, One of the big things that I think our industry is lacking or is not working properly is the fact that agriculture and food should be connected and in our society today they're so disconnected right agriculture does its thing and the food industry does its thing and nobody really puts them together so i think that's an important part about this is uh, from an agricultural aspect we need to connect food and and agriculture together so i'm uh, excited mark is believe you did the uh, the dorito effect was a, a big book that you did and steak um, that's why I've got the steaks behind me today in my background because uh, these are actually pork steaks, and I know he was referring to beef steaks in his uh, mostly in his uh, his book there, but uh, we we got pork steaks behind me. That's all I could find, and uh, yeah, excited about it. I remember my daughter had a science fair that she went into here, and she won her little local elementary school category, and then she got moved to the Westlock category, and then from there she got moved to the next level to the Edmonton Science Fair. And that was really cool, the, what she was doing. But I remember at the Edmonton Science Fair, there was another couple. Sorry, I'm not talking about my daughter here, but somebody else's daughter. And there was two of them. They had this little experiment going on. It was very interesting. I went in. Uh, they sat you down, and they blindfolded you. And they said, what we're going to do is we're going to give you some smells. We're going to give you some different smells, and you have to tell us which is the real one. I'm like, okay, whatever. Let's do this. Let's see what these, you know, encouraging these. I think they were great. I must have been grade fives, something like that, fives or sixes. And uh the one example is that they gave you a smell of an orange. And then they gave you a smell of the fake orange, right? That what what they what industry wants you to think an orange smells like. And from their little experiment in this science fair, uh, about I think it was 90% of the people always picked the fake smell, as that's what a real smell was. That was that blew me away that there's that much marketing or that much, you know, food additives that trick you into knowing what or thinking what the, the real smell of a food is. That blew me away. I just, that, that stuck with me for years and years and years. I'm pretty sure Mark can uh, uh, get into stuff like that here tonight. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Mark, just a quick introduce, uh, introduction to yourself and what you want to kind of lead off for our topics tonight. And then we'll get into some questions and answers. answers. Thanks.
2: Well, thank you so much. Um, I'll say right off the bat, what a pleasure it is to be here. And thank you all so much for for joining. And I look forward to a a great uh, chat. Uh, I know you'd like me to talk about my most recent book, but I think the best way for me to introduce myself is really to tell my story um, where it starts with the first book and and really where everything got off to a start for me. And that was in 1997. Um, I had just graduated from university and I went to visit my brother who was living in Chile at the time. And he was living in Santiago, which is sort of their main big city. And we went out to the coast for a weekend out to the, you know, rented a little cabin on the beach and he bought a tenderloin of beef and Chileans don't really like Argentines. I mean, they like them, but they have kind of a rivalry. Um, so it says something that if a Chilean's going to buy really good beef, they'll buy Argentine beef because they're not inclined to say the Argentines do a good job at anything. But they would say that's the case with beef. So we got this beautiful. Argentine tenderloin and we grilled it over coals. And it was a a moment that changed my life. It literally did change my life. It was a life changing steak because I put that first morsel of beef in my mouth and everything just came to a screeching halt. And I had one of those holy crap moments, what is going on? And I asked what I thought was a pretty simple question which was, why does this steak taste so good? And I asked it for a very simple reason because I wanted every subsequent steak I ever ate to taste that good. And it was a question that had a very difficult answer. I was just sort of becoming a journalist at the time. I'm self-taught. I never went to journalism school. And I started phoning around. I'd go to the butcher shop. And of course, they would assure me they had the very best steak. And I'd take it home. And I I thought one of the secrets was to do what the Argentines did and and the Chileans, which is just to cook it with salt, maybe pepper, nothing else. And I tried that in Toronto with these expensive butcher shop steaks. And it just sort of tasted like greasy salt water. Um, So then I started to phone around. I would call the USDA. Um, I would call the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, United States. And they also said, it's all marbling, 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 corn, corn, corn. So then I'd go and try and buy the most marble steaks. And it just kept on not working. The more I looked into it, the more I thought there's something really strange going on because beef is kind of our number one. It is the king of meats. You know, we have steak houses. We don't have chicken houses. And it's strange because you go to a steakhouse and you ask to see the wine list. And it's like a Bible and there's different parts of the world. They can tell you what year the wine was made, what the grape is. And then you say, well, where's the steak from? And they say, well, it, you know, it comes in a cardboard box and that's really all they could tell you about it. Um, and the more I looked into the science and and much of the most revealing science came from other countries, countries like the UK or Spain, uh, where they have more of a passion culture. Um, And that's where the interesting meat science came. That's where I realized that there's something much more interesting going on. So that led to my first book, this book, Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef. And it was very much just that. I just went looking around for the world's, for the best tasting steak. And what I found is it really comes down to what the cattle eat. And the very worst steaks I ate on that journey were grass-fed steaks. And so were the very best. And I think that tells you about how hard it is to, at least in my opinion, to farm properly and to raise cattle as I think they should be raised. And once, once you have those great steaks, it's, you just can't get it out of your head and, um, and you can't go back to anything less, but it also got me asking deeper questions because it, it's one thing to say that steak tastes good, but then you say, well, why did it taste good? Why does food taste good? Did we evolve to eat meat? How does flavor work? How does the brain perceive flavor? Why does food taste the way it does? And maybe the most interesting thing about the steak book was this realization that most of the beef that everyone's eating almost everywhere is quite mediocre. Uh, It's just lost its flavor for the very simple reason that we've gotten so good at producing a great deal of beef for the lowest possible price. Farmers, um, ranchers don't get paid for flavor. They get paid for how many pounds they can produce. And the cheaper they can do it, the more money they make. So it really is a race to the bottom because they're not being paid. You know, people get angry at farmers and ranchers, but, you know, people don't pay for flavor. Why? Why could we expect them to produce it? So I got to be curious about flavor also for another reason, because I had these interesting insights. I would go and visit farms and ranches and I'd hear interesting things like, you know, you can see this group of cattle, they're the pregnant moms and they've gone over into this field because they're grazing on clover because clover is rich in protein and they have a higher protein requirement because they're supporting a fetus. But these steers are over in this field and they're eating, you know, brome or ryegrass or something like that. And you think, well, How do they know that? I mean, how do they know what to eat? And and really, everyone thinks cows are stupid. They're just like these dumb lawnmowers that wander back and forth. But it's not like that at all. When you actually watch them eat, they're very picky. They'll 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 grab a clump here and sort of scan over and then grab a clump there. And you start to realize that their act of eating is is probably more introspective and and takes more judgment there on our own, where we just often eat what's put in front of us and don't really question a whole lot about it. So that brought me in touch with the work of Fred Provenza, who's probably somebody, you know, and it led to my second book, which is called The Dorito Effect. And that book was very simply an attempt to understand how our food has changed through the lens of flavor, because we're all nutritionists. We all talk about protein. We talk about carbs. We talk about fat and vitamins as though this is truly what's important about food. And on a physiological level, that is important. It's the nutrients and food that keep our bodies running. But that's not how we eat food. We experience food. And when we experience food, it is through the lens of flavor. And we never talk about flavor. But that's what cows sense when they eat. And that's what humans sense. That's what all animal sense. And what I learned in that book is that flavor is uh, nature's language of nutrition. We can't sense the vitamins in our food. We sense these, these aromatic compounds associated with the vitamins and the minerals and so forth. So really that book documented two broad changes in our food system having to do with flavor. And the first is that all the food that we grow Not just beef, but um, but all the you know, all the plants that we grow and all the animals that we raise are getting blander for the very simple reason that we've gotten so good at producing so much. If you look at yields on a per acre basis for really anything we grow, the yields are getting much, much better. That is a good news story in the sense that we have many more mouths to feed and we're losing farmland because our suburbs keep growing and everybody wants to live in the, you know, you know, nice quality land. But there's a problem with that because there's been a trade off and the trade off is flavor. And as we lose flavor, we're also losing micronutrients. So the quality really we're, we're paying a quality price simultaneously junk food has been getting more flavorful because in the 1950s, there was a device invented called the gas chromatograph. And this was the this the device, this machine, for the first time let scientists peer deep inside the food that we eat. And for the first time we were able to understand exactly what flavor is on a chemical molecular basis. And once we isolated those chemicals, we started producing them in flavor factories. This continent, every continent except Antarctica, is dotted with flavor factories, factories that produce Flavor compounds that go into so many of the foods we eat—they go into foods like Doritos and potato chips—and if you think about soft drinks, that's what makes a Coke taste like Coke and Seven Up taste like Seven Up—is flavor chemicals. The interesting thing is that we're not just putting these things in junk foods. Um, if you buy uh, a Tyson Young Chicken in the States, they have flavoring added because chicken has gotten so bland. You can buy a shoulder, a Smithfield pork shoulder. Uh, or pork chops that has flavoring added it because that has gotten so bland. So um, it's really interesting what we've done to food. We've sort of turned it all into an imitation of itself. One of the big concerns that came up with the Dorito effect was that we're obviously using flavor to make people eat food they wouldn't eat. I called it the Dorito effect because the first ever Doritos were just salted tortilla chips and they, they bombed. They were a business disaster. It was when Frito-Lay added this taco flavoring it turned a snack that nobody wanted to eat into a snack that people couldn't stop eating. So very obviously, there's a concern that, that companies are using these flavor chemicals to essentially make people eat food they wouldn't eat. And I would say in a deeper level, level, giving food a fake sheen of nutrition, it's, it's selling your brain a lie. Well, that brought me to my most recent book, which is called The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. And that took this question to a deeper level, which is to say what happens when you dump stuff in food, when you change the fundamental nature of food, this book was really an effort to get at why it is that so many people eat too much food. And this was perhaps the most revealing of all the books that I've done in terms of, of really stunning me in terms of what I thought was going on and what is really going on. I could talk for an awfully long time about it, but I'll try and keep it simple. Um, I think the most interesting revelation was how the body and the brain, how the brain really manages weight. We tend to think that um, the part of the brain that eats is stuck in the stone age. It's sort of this famished stone age moron that just wants to constantly shove calories in its mouth. And we would easily and quickly eat ourselves into an early grave if we were left to our own devices. And in fact, thats it's absolutely not true. The brain controls our appetite. And we know this because when we try to diet, it fails. Now, this is the truth about diets. They all work. But they only work for about six months and at that point the brain intervenes and it says i want you to gain back the weight that you lost we experience that command from this deep part of our brain as hunger and fatigue and so the weight comes back but it has this insidious nature because the fact that it worked for six months everybody thinks the diet was working i failed but what happened is that your brain got involved now i know what you're thinking you're thinking okay well there you have proof the brain wants us to be fat but in fact, that's not true because for more than half a century, scientists have been doing overfeeding studies. They take people, they put them in a laboratory environment and they feed them too much food. And it turns out it's really, really hard to get people to eat too much food. Um, eating too much food is almost as unpleasant as starving. The first time they did this experiment, they had to do it in a state prison because no, like ordinary people will not put up with the agony of eating too much food. And that makes sense when you think about it, because in the environment in which we evolved in. If you're carrying too much weight, uh, you can't catch your prey and there's a good chance you will become prey. So the question really became what would make these intelligent, an intelligent brain want to eat too much food? And that verb want is a key part of it, because when we look at the brain scans of people with obesity, they don't enjoy food too much. This is the the stigma. And this is what everybody thinks is that they lose themselves. They don't have no self-control. The difference that we see is not in pleasure. If anything, the pleasure response is blunted. What we see is that they crave food too much. And this is where this sensory tinkering with food comes into play, because what we find about the brain is that it's an information engine. What we think of as taste and flavor to your brain is information. Your brain is gathering information about the quality of the food that it's eating. Calories are a big part of that. So the brain measures that more than once we taste food as it, you know, enters the mouth. There's also nutrient sensors in the, di- you know, all through the digestive tract, your brain is constantly measuring. Well, we've done something to food that never existed before. We have changed the sensory nature of it. The best example is artificial sweeteners up until A handful of decades ago, the sweet signal in food was very dependable. Sugar equaled calories. The sweeter food tasted, the more calories it contained. Now we live in a food environment where sweetness can mean anything. A sweet signal could mean 200 calories on a Monday. That very same level of sweetness on a Tuesday could be zero. It could be 50, it could be 300. So it's not just sweetness that we've changed. We also have fat replacers that we put in food. Nobody knows about them. Uh, the, The fat replacer industry has done a very good job of sort of lurking in the shadows, but we've altered the sensory meaning of fat As I wrote about the Dorito effect, we use synthetic flavorings and we use things like modified starches and maltodextrin for food processing. These are what I call stealth carbs. They have calories, but you don't really taste them. So we've really changed the sensory nature of food. And what we find is that when the brain gets information that is unreliable, The way it responds is is by being more motivated. It's what we see in the brain scans, more desire, more craving, because it's an evolutionary response. If a needed thing becomes uncertain, the response is to work extra hard to get that needed thing, because if you don't, you might not get it. And that will, if that keeps happening, you're going to die. So that was perhaps the biggest um, insight was how, when we change the sensory nature of the food that we eat. It alters our brain's relationship with food and it, it it creates an aggravated desire to eat. But the other thing that I think this group will find particularly interesting was also some research I did into vitamins, because um, for about a century, well, not quite a century, we've been adding vitamins to our processed carbs. This started in the 1940s, uh, before the war, it started in the States, but Canada followed suit. Uh, but but we've you know, those levels increased. And we also have companies. If you look at breakfast cereals, there's all sorts of vitamins. And I'll be the first to say how bizarre it would sound for someone to say that vitamins could be playing a, a role here. But I think farmers often understand this the best because when you look at the rations that we feed animals now, especially in commodity farming, if you look at what they call the hot ration, it's generally corn and soy. And if in around 1920, 30, 40, farmers knew that you could feed your pigs corn and soy, but you could only feed so much because you fed too much, they would get the equivalent of a essentially a nutritional deficiency, they'd get diarrhea there. Hair would, you know, get messed up and eventually, I mean, they die. So that was sort of like rocket fuel feed, but you had to balance that. They went out, you know, all the pork was pastured back then. They went out and they ate alfalfa and whatnot to balance the ration. Well, vitamins changed everything because it meant that you could now keep pigs in what they called dry lot back then and just feed them that corn and soy and sprinkle in the B vitamins. These are the energy metabolizing vitamins. And that's what changed pig farming. We talk about KFOs, We talk about confinement farming. Vitamins made that possible because pigs no longer needed green feed. We could now give them that rocket fuel feed. And if you look at the growth curves, I mean, it changed everything. That was it. I mean, pasture pork was inefficient. People stopped doing it. So one of the questions I asked in this book is we did the same thing to our own food supply. We add B vitamins to our processed carbs. It's the law in Canada. It's it's actually even more strict here than it is in the United States. Um, And we also do it in things like breakfast cereals, incredible amounts of vitamins that we add, and even things my daughter brought home, an energy drink from Starbucks that had 200% of your RDA for vitamin B6. Why anyone would need 200% of a vitamin in one drink is anyone's guess, but I guess that's part of the sales routine. So that in kind of a nutshell is my journey, and I wanted to tell you all of it because I think. Many different points along that journey probably relate a lot to what you guys do and what you think about. So I would, you know, love to hear your thoughts, and and I hope I can help in answering any questions that you might have.
0: Excellent, Mark. Thank you very much. That was a great uh, start to this. Um, I have one comment to make on that, and then I'm going to turn it over. Amber's got a question or two already. We just got back from Colombia. We went to the Etier e- 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 Eco Resort on the north coast of Colombia. And I had the best steak I have ever had in my life. It was phenomenal. I don't know why. I don't know what. It was so tender. It was a tenderloin, obviously, but it was so tender and so flavorful. I was so impressed. I don't know why, but just to uh, add to your Argentina and Chile story there. Yeah. That Colombian steak, they, they know what they're doing down there. I don't know what it is, but
2: that, that's great to hear. Sometimes there's some countries that are, I guess, behind the curve technologically and they, they think it's backward. I, I think they're doing it right. I, I was lucky enough to go to Costa Rica a few years ago to do a story on chocolate. And I stopped at a you know, little local restaurant one evening and ordered a ribeye steak. And it was, it just had that deep, you could tell it was from an older, an older critter. It had a, it wasn't that tender, but my God, did it have great flavor.
1: Mark, if ever you want a videographer to follow you around to these places, I volunteer. <laughs> we do have a question, question already. So, Lynn, I see you. Are you ready to go?
3: Hey, I am. Um, when I heard we were going to talk to you tonight, I watched about three different YouTube videos, interviews with you. Okay. So, I hear avoid food additives, avoid processed foods, eat nutrient dense real food. But what about the people who are already addicted to bad food and or they're overweight, you know, what's the cure for them? It sounds like the body isn't going to want them to slim down permanently. For a long time, I've thought about uh, a hiking tour through Italy. And it sounds like northern Italy would be the place to go. And I, I, you know, we would just hike and eat and hike and eat. And, and so I guess I wonder, geez, how long would somebody have to do that to Would that would that reset the body, you know, eating all that healthy northern Italian food that you talk about in your book?
2: Yeah, it's a a great question. And I wish we had better research on that. There's a lot of research on what happens to different groups when they emigrate to North America and they almost always gain weight. We don't really have great um, information like on what happens when, let's say. North Americans emigrate to one of these better food environments like Northern Italy or Japan. Japan's another great example where the, I mean, the food is incredible and the rate of obesity is less than 5%. I mean, they, they are so committed to food quality in Japan. I I, tr- I couldn't, you'd have to try to have a bad meal. What I did get a lot of was anecdotal information. Um, I didn't put in the book because I really wanted to, to really keep it to the published peer reviewed science, but the many, I talked to a guy, he was an engineer, who worked for a company that makes the housing for airline for air airplane engines. And he would move to Toulouse to work for Airbus for six months, a whole group of them. And this was a guy who cycles about once a week. And he said, you know, I knew I was going to gain a lot of weight because I wasn't cycling much in France. And he said, the food was incredible. And I mean, you couldn't stop eating because it was so good. And he, and he was afraid to get on the scale because he knew it was going to be a disaster. He stepped on the scale and he lost weight. And he said even like the women were talking about how they couldn't wait to, you know, they're going to buy new bikinis and all this because everyone was just stunned. They're like, the food is amazing and we're losing weight. Um, I talked to a guy who's a Ph.D. in in neuroscience at at Yale and he's an Italian background. He spent two summers in Italy and he just raved about the food. And he said the same thing at the end of each summer, he lost 10 pounds. So I think there is something to that. I I did a podcast today with a guy in California and he was, he had some weight problems and he lost a huge amount of weight when his kids were born, going on a kind of a crash diet and cycling like eight hours a day. But he said that just wasn't compatible with being a dad. So then he went back on his old diet and gained it. But then he said he read the Dorito effect and he just started to buy food, good food, but started eating for flavor, enjoying food. And he said the weight loss has been slower, but it's been like a half a pound a week, but it just keeps happening. So I don't want to say this is some, I've proven some new miracle diet, but I do think if you eat, you know, everyone who sort of gets in, involved in this, not everybody, but most people tend to say things like eat real food, don't eat junk food. I echo that. But the thing I would add is to take the approach that the, the Italians take, which is to look at every meal as an opportunity to extract maximum enjoyment, because that is actually your brain performing nutritional calculation. And that's how we were meant to eat. It, you nourish yourself nutritionally, but you also nourish the pleasure part of your brain that needs to enjoy food. So, you know, I would say that is a good idea to do that in Italy. But the key is to figure out how to eat like that over here. And that takes it's harder work. And that's, I think, part of the bigger battle, which involves people like you who are growing better food.
0: So, Mark, I'm going to add to that a little bit. If we're eating for flavor, though, what about all the fake flavors that were being tricked? How does that roll into this? You no, know, that's
2: a good point. I should have said eat real flavor. Don't eat fake flavor. Eat, um, you know, eat. F- the, the, the thing I find so interesting about the food industry is that is that companies work so hard to make food. So much of what we eat doesn't taste like what it actually is. And if you just think for a moment and think about the part of your brain that eats, the part of your brain that controls appetite it doesn't read ingredients. It doesn't, it doesn't read diet books. The only relationship it has with food is what it can sense. So just close your eyes and think of your brain. All it knows about the food it eats is what it senses like in in the mouth, in the digestive tract. And that is what industry is working so hard to change. So I would say, you know, eat real food that richly tastes of what it actually is it's a much more enjoyable experience. It's actually way easier to cook when you're using good ingredients. It's not nearly so hard. You're not trying to figure out what's wrong with your recipe because when you use great ingredients, it just works.
0: But those nine years, nine-year-olds at that uh, science fair proved that everybody would pick the fake flavor.
2: Well, you know, that's, so that's what they call orthonasal olfaction. And so that's when you're sniffing it. I think when you actually taste it, I would say the best orange experience is freshly squeezed orange juice. That to me is the best orange experience. Fanta doesn't have anything on that. I mean, you know, Fanta can take a hike. I'll take freshly squeezed, but you do make a good point. Industry is working really hard and they're getting better at it all the time. And that is a big problem.
1: It's interesting because when I did that same test at the same science fair, I actually went against the grain and I, I couldn't stand the smell of the fake orange. Like it just, Oh, it was so disgusting. So that's
4: interesting. Um,
1: Next question is from Chase. Chase, are you ready?
4: I get neighbor's eggs from a neighbor, chicken eggs. And I noticed they were spraying their yard the other day. And I know Roundup was used. Are those better than getting them from the store? So,
2: sorry, I don't know if I heard right. You, You have a neighbor who sprayed their pasture with Roundup and then, and they also have pastured eggs. Is that it? Yeah, that's a good question, um, and I don't—I I actually haven't looked at that uh, answer in particular. I wonder why they would do that. It seems odd if they're pasturing their chickens just to let them eat what's growing there. But um,
0: I would maybe look for eggs from somewhere
2: else. Okay, thank you.
0: My comment on that would be: uh, years ago, I heard about a herd of goats. So northern or northern BC or parts of BC were trying to clear cut lines the power line you know, where they put the power line in, they need to keep the brush down. And they had herds of goats going in there that were trying to keep this down. Instead of using chemicals, they were using goats. And this fellow was telling me that he, his herd, herd of goats went in there. And previously they were, you know, the, the year before they were controlling this, this brush with different mechanisms, not goats. Uh, one part of it was controlled with chemicals and one part of it was controlled with uh, brushing. So mowing or, or knocking it down. And he said that when his goats went in there, they had a, a very selective part of where, where they went to graze. They did not want to graze the part where the chemical was used the year before. And they preferred to go where it was mowed or where it was brush cleared. Um, so that's the, the year after in, a, in perennial plants. So it was sprayed last year and the goats could still sense the chemical that was used. I don't know which chemical, but it, whatever they used. The year following, they could still sense the chemical in it. Now, you know, to be devil's advocate here on the other side, I've heard of farmers who say that when they, they go out and, and you make yellow feed, so green feed would be you, know, you make oats or barley and you cut it for, for green feed, so you're actually going to feed that to the cattle. But yellow feed would be when you spray it first, kill it out, dry it down and then harvest it uh, quickly so that it's uh, in good shape, but it was technically sprayed. They said that the the cattle love the yellow feed. So I'm not gonna just you know bluntly say that chemicals were the problem here, but there is the goats definitely could taste the chemical residue from the year before. So it, species could be different here, but chemicals I, I believe do have an effect on the the taste and in, in the feed that we're having.
2: I think I may have an explanation actually for that. Um, I talked in the Dorito effect, as I mentioned about Fred Provenza's work and one of Fred's his kind of founding insight was, uh, when he was doing his PhD, he was looking at goats that were eating black brush. Um, and he knew the thing that really surprised him was that the, the, the newer shoots, the tender new shoots of black brush, he knew to be more nutritious, more protein, just, just more nutritious overall. And he couldn't figure out why his goats were opting for the older ones. And he went back and his PhD advisor said, well, there you go. It just goes to show you that animals don't possess nutritional wisdom. And Fred thought at the time, like he really had this feeling that they did and he couldn't figure it out. And what he realized later on when he did more sophisticated analysis was that the newer shoots had more um, what they call plant secondary compounds, more essentially they're putting in more toxins so that goats won't eat them because they're newer. They just don't have as much body mass to to be able to be resilient. So it may have been that happening that, that when the, um, when the, uh, the spraying killed um, the plants, so new ones were growing that would have had more, uh, plant, essentially were more toxic. So that that could be an alternate explanation.
1: Awesome. Uh, Larry, you are up next. <clears throat> yes, uh, Mark,
5: I grow grass-fed beef, and I'm always searching a way to produce better beef. I'm real not certified organic, but I go out of my way to uh, do good beef. But quick statement, then I'll ask my question. Last uh, Saturday, we had a chance to eat a wild boar which they're coming north out of Florida and Georgia, getting close to us, and I hope they don't get here. But uh, a friend of mine cooked it over a fire. It was awesome. I never tasted any meat that had so much flavor to it. Now, he had he had put a little stuff on it outside of vinegar and injected it, but beef had in Argentina, it was amazing, uh, the taste. of. It. But when you search for your uh, steak book, where did you find the best steak, and do you know what it was eating or what type of grass? I mean, here we have mostly fescue, but I do cover crops to finish my beef for the last three weeks. Uh, Sudan grass, mostly clovers and peas.
2: Well, that sounds like a good good plan. What you're doing, um, I had, I would say for that book, I had three really crazy good steaks. One of them was in in Scotland. That was from a Highland uh, steer. And it was a ribeye. And honestly, that was, it really was fork tender. I, you could, you could eat it like, like cake, like you could cut it with the side of your fork. I, I, that was insane. Um, I had the Argentina it kind of Argentina's done. They they just messed up their farming system so badly now that you might find a decent steak there, but they've really just, they're, they're basically growing soybeans to feed to pigs in China now. Um, and they're not raising maybe Uruguay's got some decent grass fed beef still for South America, uh, but Argentina used to be the sort of um, Shangri-La of beef, and it just is not anymore, which is sad. Uh, also in Idaho, I visited a, a ranch called Alder Spring Glen Elzinga, who some of you may have heard of. And uh, he's been in the grass fed sphere for a very long time, and, and he just produces some absolutely beautiful beef. But but, you know, anybody with so many places and people have the potential to do this. one of the wonderful things about grass-fed beef is that it's like wine. It it sort of reflects the land from where it comes. So it's all, and that's what makes it exciting is that your steak is going to taste different than Glen's. I think the key from having been an observer, I won't call myself an expert, but being an observer, don't take shortcuts. They need to be older. I think, you know, minimum 22, 24 months old. I think when people try to get them younger, occasionally you can get them in under the line, but so often it's a disaster. Um, The challenge with grass-fed beef is like, there's, there's like, it's like a pie. There's like 10 things you got to do right. And so many people just do six or seven and they skip the other three and they usually pay a heavy price for it. The other thing is just, they need to be on the gain. Marbling is incredibly overrated because we've figured out cheap ways to get them fat. But when cattle put on fat from eating grass, uh, the result is wonderful. So I would just say, feed them good, nutritious feed, make sure they're on the gain. It sounds like you're, you're finishing them. You're getting that fat on at the end. And I think that's essential.
5: Went to a grassroots meeting, and uh, I can't pronounce his name, Annabelle Portobingo from Argentina. Yep. Yep, I yeah, I visited him. He said, uh, one thing he said, a calf should gain from the day it's born to the day it goes to butcher cow. You don't ever want it to get in that state, maybe in the winter where it gets real thin. He said that affects the tenderness of that beef, so I'm really concerned with it. My cows come out of the winter like they hadn't been through the winter. We're looking at grass in Georgia, but. <laughs> I was impressed with that. I don't want to ever have one that goes through that slow spell. Thank
0: you. That was awesome. Larry, you just stole my thunder there. That's what I was going to say. But what winter do you have? You're in Georgia.
5: (laughs) It was 17 degrees the other morning. Oh,
0: my my Lord. No, that's not going to do. No, (laughs) I was going to say the same thing. One of the things that I learned a long time ago is that your animals have to gain every day of their life. Mm -hmm. Right? So if they get sick and they go down, that's not a heifer that I'm going to put in the deep freeze. If they, you know, if, if they have a really cold winter and you're, for example, this winter, there's no feed in Alberta everybody's short of feed and there's going to be a whole bunch of people out there who are skimping and saving and you know feeding straw and and pellets or something to try and get through this winter because there's it was a widespread drought and there's no feed anywhere um, so there's going to be some issues this year with with the flavor of grass-fed beef I believe but yeah uh, wintertime is a big issue for us because all of a sudden it hits minus 40 you got to keep those animals gaining what i found on our ranch i mean i'm not not that i've done this a whole bunch i'm not saying that i've done a whole bunch of grass fed beef but um with our customers what we do is we buy the open heifers they're a little bit older they went through the same nutrition as all the other animals but they didn't get pregnant so mm. they ended up gaining better and we end up butchering them in september and we've had some really flavorful really tender uh open heifers so they're a little bit older just like mark just said uh that's been our most successful grass-fed meat is those open heifers for sure i wish i could get
5: somebody to spay heifers i would finish heifers rather than steers but no veterinarians do that here so it's it's hard to do but usually mine are almost 30 months old i cave in the spring so they go through two winters and kill that fall so they're most close to 30 months old i think that does make a difference as mark said
2: yeah, it, you're making me hungry. I hope I get a chance to taste one of your steaks one <laughs> day. Um, you know, the Japanese uh, say that the, the best beef comes from a heiferette, not all Japanese, but that's sort of a belief down there. That's an interesting way to maybe get a bit of age on and, and, and try to recoup a little value. The only other thing I'll say just as an observer is every, I visited um, farms and ranches, you know, all over the world, South America, North America, and everyone thinks they have the worst winter. Uh, just so it's something the Canadians should keep in mind is we think we have a bad, but then you go and visit places in the States. They go, no, you, the ground freezes. You don't know how lucky you are. We've got this mud problem. So it's just, everyone thinks their winter's the worst. It's just something to keep in mind.
5: <laughs> I've got a friend that raises Wagyu. He almost will admit my, uh, half Jersey's tastes better. Jersey is awesome. beef. If you ever get a chance to get a Jersey or half Jersey. Um, I've, I've
2: heard that. And there's actually genetic relations. I think um, if you look at a genetic map of, map of Wagyu, they're, they're oddly close
5: to Jersey. It takes three years to finish, and that's what I don't like.
0: He will almost admit, almost admit.
1: <laughs> I feel like that conversation alone could go on for a long time um next up we have Barbara we actually had and I'm going to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent here because I was very excited to be able to meet Barb in person yesterday she's one of the people who've been on these Wednesday networkings for a very long time now and it's it's the same thing as if I the day that I get to meet Larry or Tom or any of you guys or even you Marshall crew um it was wonderful to be meet her in person. Uh, So Barb, if you want to go and ask your question.
6: Yeah, my question has to do with hanging the meat. When I was raising buffalo, we hung the meat. We had a local butcher. So we field killed, pre-sold, and then field killed. And um, and the, the animal went from full life to full death instantly. And the herd came over and everybody said goodbye. And then The guy in the kill truck took the carcass to the meat place, the the butcher, and he hung the front end for about two weeks and the hind for about three weeks. And the meat was absolutely amazing. Even with an older bull, I I got my last bull I had to take to a kill plant and he was eight years old and and, uh, the guy had never heard of aging meat. And so. I told him, I said, you age this and I told him how, and I'll give you one of the steaks and you can just check it out. And he said it was fork tender and the best steak he'd ever had. So what's happened to that? How do we do that? I'm trying to buy some bison carcasses right now and I don't know where to get them aged because the local butcher says somehow rather there's a rule against aging carcasses. So I don't know what to do.
2: That's, I don't know of any rule. Um, So I'll tell you what happens when you age beef. It's somewhat complicated, but when to, to gain muscle, muscle has to be destroyed. Um, And there's enzymes that do that called calpain enzymes. So one of the reasons cattle need to be on the gain when they're killed is because you want those uh, muscle destroying those muscle fiber, destroying enzymes in the meat, because that's what goes to work and, and tenderize the meat. So when you, when you age the meat, um, there's, there's a, a quick process of, of, um, you know, the post postmortem thing as, as it comes down to temperature, but then this slow process of aging happens where these enzymes slowly break down the muscle fibers, you get the most action in the first 10 days. And then after that, it's, it's, you know, more marginal returns, but the longer it goes, the more tender it will become. It is anaerobic. It doesn't need oxygen to do this. So there's a big controversy about wet aging versus dry aging. And I'm going to sound like a heretic because I'm actually a fan of wet aging. And I'll tell you why, because I love grass fed beef, but grass fed beef or bison has a lot of omega threes in it. And omega threes, it's a polyunsaturated fatty acid and they are hot to trot. They want to react. They want to get oxidized that when oxidation happens at low temperature, the other other word for it is rancidity. So some of you, I've just had too many experiences where somebody had beautiful grass-fed beef that was dry aged and it was in the, it's possible to do it, but it's really hard. You really have to control your humidity and it can get a very funky off flavor. And I've just seen it ruin really beautiful beef. You don't have that problem with wet aging. So I think it can be safer, but whether you do it wet or dry, it is the amount of time that it's literally aging um you keep it at a low temperature um and it is just enzymes slowly breaking down the muscle fiber
6: so what is wet aging i don't know what the butcher was doing except that he said he he wiped the carcass down every so often with acv
2: um so what so when you see the carcass hanging like like on the you know on the rail that is dry you know the side of beef whatever or even just the loin or, or something that is dry aging Wet aging is when they they cut it down into primals and backpack it in plastic and let it age in the plastic in in the lake. You know, there's a lot of purge and all that. There's liquid in it. So it's wet aging.
6: Yeah, we used to have about a 10 percent shrink. So people had to really value that we did that. Yeah. Yeah. There will be shrink. Yeah. I don't remember that that was available at that time that I was doing it. Okay, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Thank you very much really appreciate
0: pleasure. it i was going to add to that Barbara, it just sounds like your butcher doesn't want to keep uh you know storage for that long the more animals we can run through the butcher in it in a day the more money they make so they don't want you to keep it there for 28 days they'd rather have it gone <laughs> in 14 right so that's where i'm looking at that <laughs>
6: So you don't think there is such a limitation as the because there's a really great butcher here that mostly gets their meat, their their regular meat from real from uh, the Warburg uh, Hutterite colony. And, and they're the ones that I call to see if we could bring the carcass in and if they would age it. But you're saying that you don't run into that. that kind oh, of thing. It uh, may
2: be because you were bringing in a carcass from somewhere else. Um, and it, it, they, it might be one of those situations where they can only age meat that they slaughtered themselves and to bring in other meat, they would get into issues. It, it might be that.
6: Why would a butcher shop slaughter? Oh, you so know, it was the, a butcher the, shop, not a. Oh, yeah, it was uh, a
2: butcher shop. Was is the, is it was it inspected meat? No,
6: no, no, oh. no, 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 no. This is this is the the place I want to get this um, is field kill. And so they they do just a beautiful job of killing the animals, just so clean, just like on my ranch. And that's where I'd like to get it. But I the wet aging I never even heard of. So I'm going to have to look into that because maybe that's the solution. Maybe they just don't, you know, they're just so busy. This is one of the most incredible meat markets I've ever seen. (laughs) There's always a lineup of people (laughs) trying to get in and
0: we've had a know, lot of a
6: whole bunch of, of butchers, yeah
0: mark we've had a lot of issues in alberta over the last few years about butchers right we're we're limited on they're so busy right they just mm-hmm. want to get them in and out and get them in and out because because there's a lineup poultry was a big issue for a while because you couldn't you had to book six months in advance to get your birds butchered but you've got what 20 week old birds how do you mm-hmm. book those tw- six months in advance? Like that's impossible. Yeah. So lately, or in the last couple of years, the Alberta government actually allowed us to do on-farm butchering if you get a license, and so that's a has opened up some more availability for the you know the grass-fed side. But it's still not a a perfect system by any means. But yeah, we've had a lot of issues with butchering, and they're so busy. I mean, I was trying to book my pigs in, and I phoned in, I think July. And they said, no, we can't even get you in in November because we got a space in December. It's like, what? I'm like one of your regulars. How do you not get me in? Like, uh, Yeah, it's been crazy with butchers in Alberta. So.
1: That's awesome. Thank you, Barb and Mark and Steve. Um, The next question we have is from John. He doesn't have a mic. And he says, as a converted member of the choir, I understand what you are preaching. How can we do our own evangelizing against the system that rigs uh, in brackets subsidizes the game against good nutrient dense food?
2: Uh, My experience is to lead with flavor. Um, When you tell people why the food is good, like it's healthier or it's better for the environment, it, it people feel like they're going to church or something it's gonna be and they're like they they start to get scared it's gonna be they're, they're so often this sort of uh, idea that health, health food tastes bad you, you get you get them in the door with flavor you blow them away with flavor and then you say it's better for you it's better for the critter it's better for the environment for the planet and it's this and then they and then they become evangelized themselves because they, they see what a win-win-win it is
0: i i would agree it depends on the person Okay. This comes back to a salesmanship and and I don't like salesmen, right? A a salesman that comes to me, if they can sell me something, they're good because I'm, I don't trust salesmen, but when it comes to meat, you also have to be a salesman, right? You have to tell them why, right? You got to give them all the pros. We're better for the environment. It's, it's a healthier product. You're going to have less sickness in your future. I mean, there's all these different things that we can be the salesman (laughs) it's a human resources issue more than a product issue, right? People got to trust you. As, as a supplier of protein into the industry, they have to trust you. They got to know you. I mean, advertise yourself more than your product because they have to be able to trust you before they're going to even you know think about buying your, your meat from you. So uh, yeah, it's again, it comes down to, to selling. It's a salesmanship thing
2: it's, it's a big thing to sell on. Like it's really hard to get people to change the way they understand food, but there really is, it really is a better value. I would rather for dinner, I would rather have a good ground beef patty with mashed potatoes and a salad than a bad steak. And that blows a lot of people away. But when you taste what really good meat is like, I mean, that's a no brainer, but it's, it's, you know, if you think how far gone a lot of people are like, Oh, you know, I was talking to somebody during the pandemic and everybody was, you know, working from home. And this guy said he hadn't, he was like an executive. He had an assistant who didn't even know how to make a sandwich. Like the guy didn't know how to make a sandwich. This is how out of touch a lot of people are with food. So it really is. It's a long, slow process, but, but change does happen.
0: I I would agree, Mark. I hate a bad steak. Oh, I regret so many times going out to a restaurant and ordering a steak. I'm like, Oh, I'm just, I'm not going to like, I'm, I'm, yeah. You know what? I'd rather, go home and my wife makes some fantastic meatballs oh my gosh like they're fantastic because yeah. they're grass-fed meat and she puts her spices in and she's really good but yeah i, I agree i hate a bad steak
1: yet steve you still won't eat my guacamole <laughs> laurel had a question she had to step away from the computer so i'll read it off Mark, did you ever look into genetics as far as beef quality or do you know of anyone who has? I think it's Steve Kenyon, who I often hear say there's more variation within a breed than there is between breeds. Uh,
2: Yes, I I looked into it a great deal. Yes, it's true that there's a great deal of variation within breeds. And the other thing is that there's no one true genetics because everybody has different land. Um, So what you need is to find the genetics that perform the best on the land that you have. So that what works well for somebody in Alberta might not work well for somebody in Georgia or Ontario or even a different part of Alberta, even maybe across the street. So it's really important to understand what you're trying to achieve. The the genetics that are probably the most interesting from a superficial point of view are probably Wagyu cattle, only because they have the two genetic variations. They marble like mad, like really marble like nuts. Um, And they also have a a, um, gene that desaturates the uh, stearic acid um, into oleic acids. So their fat is softer and it has the lower melting temperature. So that is a steak that you could raise exactly the same way. And it will, it will have different eating uh, properties. Is it better? I love it, but I also love, you know, I've had great, uh, Angus, I've, I've, I've had great beef from many, many different breeds. So it's really a question of what you're trying to do, the land that you have and what you're trying to achieve with those cattle. You know, if you've got kind of more marginal land, don't get a really high performing breed get something like like a highland or a galloway or something that's that's going to perform better you're going to have to raise them longer but that's the land that you have and i that said don't come to me for advice on exactly which genetics to get but that's just been my observation as far as it's it's like grapes um certain grapes make great wines but that doesn't mean you can grow those grapes anywhere you want
1: yeah I, i think we've been super lucky in in the breed that we have i haven't yet had a bad animal on with our cows on our lambs so i'm like I, i'm really scared to change it up too much
0: <laughs> what and what breed is that i'm curious
1: mostly dexter
0: oh great thanks for quoting me there uh laurel and uh i've said that for years i didn't know anybody was listening
1: oh come on
7: funny um next we have verlin are you ready to go so my my question was so we're raising grass-fed beef we've been kind of got into it accidentally, but, and before we realized it was cool, but that's our, our, our goal. And we've been doing, we started out with, um, breeding heifers and then our open ones, we would, would fatten. Now this, this whole thing about wet aging versus dry aging, that's not something i had ever heard before as far as making it rancid. So I haven't even asked a butcher shop to do wet aging. And I was just kind of curious, like how big of a deal breaker is that? I've noticed some of the fat was a bit stronger and maybe not the best tasting, but I didn't know that that would be a product of dry dry aging. So I am interested in learning how to better it for sure.
2: I mean, this has been my experience. Like I said, it's sort of heresy in the steak world because everybody's obsessed with dry aging. I'll tell you why I think dry aging is a big deal is because it's all steakhouse and butchers can do to differentiate themselves. So everybody's buying commodity beef and one guy's across the street from the other guy. And he goes, well, what I want to, you know, I want to sell my steak for triple the price for someone driving a BMW. What do I do? So they say it's dry aged. Um, So dry aging just has this, this mystique to it, but I have, I've done so many experiments taken, you know, loins from, from the, you know, two sides of beef from the same critter. And one is wet aged and one is dry aged, And I'm telling you the wet aged beef is better. Um, the big problem with dry aging is like I said, especially with grass fed beef is the rancidity It's these omega threes. And you just get this, this flavor. It's like, 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 like a wet dish rag or something. If if you've ever left butter out too long, it can get that, that off flavor. It's possible to do it right, but I've just seen too many disasters. And I think it's so unfortunate when you have such beautiful beef that has an off flavor and it's a deal killer for, for customers. They just don't want beef that has that, Funk on it, so I'm a fan of wet aging. I think it's a more reliable way to get the beef aged.
0: I think uh, uh us here in Alberta need to think about that more because I'm I'm I've not not really heard of wet aging either. I'm going to go talk to my butcher uh, uh this summer and see what they can do.
1: Great, thanks, guys. And next we have Larry.
5: I told you I wasn't going to talk tonight, uh, <laughs> Mark. I'm big on minerals. I feed my cattle sea salt and. Uh, hope to do some biochar soon, but not to do minerals. Is minerals have an effect on the flavor of beef?
2: That's a great question. Um, I presume it does, but the question is, why and what capacity? Is it it the mineral lick or is it the mineralization of the soil and the effect that's going to have on the plant and then the compounds that that plant produces? I have a feeling it's all the above, and I don't know of any research that's been done to actually pinpoint that. Um, So I'll be interested in your experience uh, to see if you notice a difference.
5: I don't eat anybody else's beef except mine. <laughs> I went to Ruth Chris one time and ate a hundred dollar steak and it it just, just tastes like corn. So I won't do that yeah. again. But don't, don't do that. Uh, but minerals, I think, is part of the nutrient dense density that we need in our meat and our vegetables too, I believe. Everybody knows we do composting. We do commercial composting for organic gardens, but we found out that the leaves that we compost are full of minerals, almost like Azerite uh, minerals. And I think minerals are a big part of, of what we're missing in some of our food. Thank you.
0: I would agree with that, Larry. I think the mineral content or you know, giving minerals to your animals and vitamins to your animals, it can't be right at the last minute either. Right? It's got to be a, you know, what you're giving now is going to affect your animals six months from now. Because w- when I'm looking at it as a custom grazer, it's the health of that animal, not necessarily the finishing product, but the health of it. If you're giving minerals now, six months later, they're gonna be a lot healthier, they're gonna do better. Um, if all of a sudden you're into a wreck somewhere and you, oh, we, we better give minerals, it's too late, right? You gotta be proactive on that for sure. Now, to co- totally contradict myself on that, I was told uh, quite a few years ago that if you feed extra salt, uh, to your animals. I mean, for me, it was pigs because I'm doing grass-fed pigs. Extra salt to your pigs right before butcher, the meat's going to be tender. I have no idea if that's true. Maybe Mark can help us out with that. Is there any substance to that whatsoever? Um, I've I've I- also heard the
2: same thing for apple cider vinegar. I've heard it for all sorts of things. So I I can't see why that would be the case. The only thing is, if you feed extra salt, it's going to make them drink more water, and I can't see why that would make the meat more tender.
1: It was actually our butcher that told us that a number of years ago to to feed the extra salt. I'm glad, Steve, that you brought that up because I was going to be like, I don't know, our butcher said.
0: I don't want to change it, though, because I've been doing it for so many years. If I just stop doing it and all of a sudden my pork comes back not being tender because of it, I don't want to stop. It's like that experiment you don't want to (laughs) do. Better safe than story.
5: How do you get them to eat more salt? I mean, my cows don't eat so much.
0: Oh, with the pasture pigs, we just put it in the, in the grain supplement. So they already have, they already have a mineral mix all year long. It's, it's put right in with the grain supplement. I mean, they're on, on pasture, but we give them some grain because we have a short growing season and we just can't get them to wait quick enough without a little bit of grain. And then right the last week I add extra salt. Like I buy an extra bag of salt or it's usually a fortified salt. So there's some other minerals in it too, but I just, not to mention, there's already salt in there. I throw extra in every bucket in that last no, week. That makes sense. I don't sense. know if it's working, but I'm scared to stop.
5: <laughs> yeah, don't, don't stop. It's you know, like my apple cider vinegar. I've done it so long, and I've got two vets. that swear about retired vets, but I stick
0: with my apple cider vinegar. It's an added cost, but I think it pays off. So We're in trouble this year, Larry. The apple harvest last summer in Canada was terrible. I phoned my apple cider vinegar dealer this this spring to see what we can get in. He says we've got none. You get no apple cider vinegar this year at all. So uh, we're in a little bit of trouble here. We're going to go with a different product that he suggested. That it's kind of a probiotic thing that see he says is supposed to do the same thing. But yeah, there's no apple cider vinegar in Canada this year.
5: I can ship you some Georgia moonshine. Is that for <laughs> me or for the pigs? <laughs> <laughs> It'll make you tender. <laughs>
1: You guys are funny. Uh, Next, we have Kristeva with the Ethical Agriculture Podcast. So we actually were able to do an interview with her a while ago, and she's fantastic. And I'm looking forward to this question. You ready to go?
3: Sorry, with the wet aging, I'm just wondering, do you not have any concerns about your meat being wrapped in plastic? Plus, like I tend to try and avoid using plastic close to food whenever possible, which is almost impossible these days. But yeah, I, it's kind of like the, I stick away from sous vide to me. That's not cooking. Plus I don't want my food, food touching that much plastic. I just curious about your take on that.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I'm not, I suppose I'm a little concerned, but I'm actually more concerned with the rancid, um, with a rancid lipid, with a rancid fat, the fact that it tastes bad and smells bad, to me is saying it's not good for you. And there's good reason to think that, especially with the polyunsaturated fatty acids, those are the essential fats. The reason they're essential is because your body uses either omega-3s or omega-6 to make all sorts of metabolites, which is to say they take that molecule and use it to build and do funky stuff with um, you know, compounds um, that are involved in inflammation, uh, all sorts of things. The concern about oxidized or rancid lipids is that those also get selected and your body's making metabolites with those that might be bad. So there's, a, there's some interesting new research. These are called oxylipins, these these um, oxidized lipids. And the feeling is it's not good for you. And the reason they smell so bad and have this off-putting quality is because they're not good for you. So There might be something to the plastic, but I'm I'm even more concerned by something that kind of gets this visceral like, ooh, I don't want to eat that um, reaction.
3: And but have you found like I haven't found that in any meat that I've hung or or had hung it. Generally, that's the 10 percent that of weight drop that gets cut off, is it not?
2: No, well, Have not in my different? experience. And I've talked to so many ranchers who've had the same problem. And it might not happen every time, but even if it happens to one in 10 carcasses, if it, if you've got, if you're selling somebody a New York strip steak and it's got that rind of fat on it, and that has a very displeasing off flavor, I mean, you're charging a lot of money and customers are not happy. And and one of the big problems for grass fed beef, especially earlier on is there were so many quality issues it got a really bad reputation a lot of it gets put in the ground as well. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll cut off some, some trim and they, they put that in the trim that gets ground. So then you've got ground beef that's got an off flavor problem. So I'm not saying it happens every time, but the problem is when it does happen, it's, it's a deal killer.
3: Oh, okay. Thank you for your response. Pleasure. Lynn, you are up next. So um, in one of the podcasts I listened to, you mentioned something about, um, well, I mean, I, I guess I'm a super taster as far as rancid is concerned. Mm-hmm. So if you feed me flour or even rice, that's been on the shelf for too long, it tastes, you know, I can taste that it's gone off the, mm-hmm. the fats, the oils in it and stuff. So is there a job for me somewhere?
2: <laughs> yeah. Some people are certainly sensitive, but I find I'm sensitive. Similarly, um, you find it too with things like olive oil. Um, I guess. if it's, if it's sitting around for too long, it starts to get like, kind of that paint thinner on very faint, but, but it starts
0: to creep in it's just not pleasant at all. Yeah.
3: So you're saying I should be a food writer.
0: <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh. So Lynn, I'm curious about how sensitive you are, because there's so many foods that have changed in the last, I don't know, I'm going to say five to 10 years, you know, my, my family alone, we've had issues with gluten. Right, I've got a, uh, a a niece. I've got a cousin, uh, my wife, myself. All of a sudden, can't eat gluten. Right, mm-hmm. what has changed in the last you know ten years? Um, I all of a sudden we're having issues with milk. Right, we. I just listened to a talk by uh, uh, Julie Van rosendell who uh, she's the reporter that talked about the. I think they called it Buttergate. How butter has changed. Mm-hmm so the dairy industry started using a lot of palm oil in their rations which changed the milk which changed the consistency of the butter which changed everything right so w- there's so many changes in our in our food industry that is after the agriculture industry right mm-hmm. like maybe maybe there's your your job you need to be going testing all these different foods and if you can smell the difference in them maybe we can get something out of it but i'm mm-hmm. just uh, shocked at the diff- the changes in our food in the last 10 or 15 years, I think there's a big issue there. Uh, Mark, you got anything to add to that? Oh, well,
2: only I'd say those changes, its it's been an ongoing set of changes since really uh, World War II, uh, the, the changes in our agricultural system. It just, it's just been kind of at a galloping pace. And uh, and it's also like that frog slowly being boiled. Um, I wrote about the Dorito effect about how much chicken has changed. And I would say most people really don't know what chicken tastes like. Um, it's really only the old timers. Um, I got a great chicken, uh, like an heirloom chicken from a farm and. I gave it to my dad. My, you know, my dad was born in 1933, and he said, "I haven't tasted chicken like that since before the war." So, it's uh, it's changes been happening for a long time.
1: I actually have a question. So, I was I was thinking about this as I was reading your book, and I had um, nacho chips and guacamole for dinner tonight. And I'm sitting there, and I'm I was thinking about how if I'm eating real food, once my brain says, "Hey." you know, I'm good. I, I can stop. But with, let's say Dorito chips or nacho chips or something of that nature, I actually have to like force myself to stop eating them. Cause it's like, you want to continue even after they no longer really taste good. Cause you've gotten through that first, like in your book, you, you mentioned how with sugar water, you know, you'll, you'll like it for the first little bit, but then you won't want any more of it. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what has happened to our food like nacho chips that make it so that you want to keep eating, even though really it doesn't taste good anymore?
2: You know, when we talk about the pleasure of food, the word we tend to use is delicious. And it's an interesting word because it means different things at different times and different foods. I find things like Doritos or potato chips are really interesting because when they are stuck in front of us at a party, we start to eat them and you get into that kind of repetitive routine where you can't stop eating them. And we've all been there. And some people say these foods are really delicious. And I kind of challenge that because they always they only seem delicious. That sounds weird. What the hell am I saying? when you start to eat these foods you put in your mouth the first thought you have is i want another so it's very much a food around wanting it's a food that's all about desire but you'd never stop and reflect on a food like that like nobody ever says like i'll never forget that bag of chips i had in paris on my honeymoon those foods never really move us they never really transport us whereas if i think of that steak i had in argentina i still think on it and it it, it sort of carved Itself in my memory. A really good fruit can do that. If you think of like a a peach that just at the perfect moment in July when it's just absolutely perfect, it's not. So one of the things I also notice it's foods that you eat quickly versus the eat slowly. And I find really good foods instead of speeding things up, they slow things down, and you sort of become the passenger, and like the food takes you on this journey. So I think one of the things we need to be better at doing is developing. A, a vocabulary for describing the pleasure of food. And I think there should be three phases to it. There's, there's the desire you're excited to eat this food. Then there's the pleasure impact moment, but then there's also the post eating satiety. And we've all had a great meal that afterwards, you're like you move onto the porch or you go and sit down on the couch and you're just sort of in this reflective mood where it, you're you're left with this lasting deep sense of satiety. There's almost this little trick, trickle of pleasure that lasts after the meal. And I think the problem with junk food is it's really just about desire. You want to eat it. And then as you're eating it, you want the next bite. Um, and it's a, really, it's a cheap thrill. It, we've all gotten caught in the trap, but it's not, it doesn't really, you know, nourish the soul. It just makes you shove food in your mouth.
0: See, and Mark, there's where I come back to. Is it an addiction? right? Do the, the, the companies are learning. They're getting so smart. They're getting more flavors and more products and more additives and preservatives that actually cause you to addict something, right? Like you're addicted to it. Like, oh man, I got to go taste another McNugget. I just, so, I'm craving McNuggets because they put something in there that, that causes you to, you know, desire it more. So is that a, a product they're adding or is it actually a flavor or a nutrient? You know, I, I can't see it being a, you know, lacking nutrients.
2: No, it's, I would say it's the flavorings they're adding. The word addiction to me is tricky only because people who are struggling with addiction, that is just so much worse than eating a bag of chips. I mean, it, it's a, it's something that not only destroys single lives, it can destroy families, but what I will say are there are similarities. So if you look at a brain scan of somebody suffering from addiction, it's not about pleasure, a heroin addict, an alcoholic, When they're craving the heroin or the alcohol, they say it's the one true thing they love and they think it will bring them pleasure, but it doesn't. Um, And and the pleasure has become drained from the experience. And that's what we see with obesity is that people, like I said, they don't enjoy food so much anymore is that they crave it. But I also find these foods like Doritos are a good example where I think it's a little glimpse of that where you're you're in this repetitive Mode, like we've all done it, where you're at a party and you get that stupid seasoning on your hands and you're like, I'm done. And you go and wash your hands. And like five minutes later, you're eating them again. You're like, what the hell am I doing? So there is this, I will agree that there's this glimpse of that happening. I would just say, just to be courteous to the people who really do have a full blown addiction, it's a glimpse of the agony that they contend with. But I wouldn't say it's anywhere near that degree.
1: That's good and really interesting. Uh, Kelvin, you have a question
7: hey mark uh once again i uh, want to thank you for the books that you put out guys you know i read steak and the dorito effect and uh, they're really informative they really resonated and i'm looking forward to your other book because i know just in my own life i just think there's a piece missing of really understanding food and uh, you know i don't take the time to really connect with my food even though this is a business that i'm in raising grass-fed beef and i understand the value proposition but we're in such a hurry And there's just so many variables going on all the time that it uh, does almost takes a real conscious effort to make that change, to just focus on the flavor, slow down, realize when you're full and you probably have enough nutrition because you know it's so much more nutrient dense. I guess my question is is uh around the future of where you you know the food scene itself. I mean we've seen some changes where grass fed beef has become more popular and it's driven by you know whether it's an environmental, whether it's nutritional or uh you know animal welfare and that kind of stuff is gaining popularity. But when you get in times of turbulent times like this where we've got war, so many other things: financial crisis, inflation. People, you know, don't want to spend a lot more money on food. Do you see the? You know, are you seeing a shift? And where do you see the future going? Because when it comes down to brass tacks, a lot of people choose based on price at the end of the day. And these scientists, it appears, you know, they've done such a great job of incorporating all these artificial flavors at a cost that is perceived to be less. You know and uh, and that so just uh, wondering if you've seen the shift and what the what you see for the future and when, um, a couple other things who's reading your books and are they any people of influence that are looking to take this information that you're presenting and make another change i know your book will make a change but you know what ripple effect do you see coming from it
2: so I'll answer the second question first. I mean, it's interesting. Lots of people read them. And I get all sorts of interesting emails from all sorts of people. I hope more people of influence will read them. The real problem we face, though, is that most people in the world that we live in don't take kind of a deeper look at things the way many of the people uh, here do. People seem to want really easy answers to complex questions, more so than ever. If you look at some of our cultural discussions, if you look at politics, Things are becoming so inane and there's such an almost an intolerance for nuance or complexity. Everybody wants things to be simple. Something's good or something's bad. And they don't want to see the, the often entangled way different things influence, that there's downstream effects that people often don't anticipate. So I think that's one of the real challenges that there's less of an appetite than ever for people to be curious and to really want to get to the bottom of something. What they really want to do is kind of join a tribe and throw stones at the other tribe and say, we're right and you're wrong. And I just see that playing out in nutrition and politics and culture everywhere. And it's dangerous and it's corrosive and and it needs to stop. And I don't know how to get it to stop. As far as food and what is the direction food is going, I think it's going simultaneously in two different directions. We see things like like so-called plant based meat, which is just the the dumbest phrase ever. I mean, grass fed beef is plant based meat. It's meat that comes from animals that eat plants. And it actually has many of the characteristics of the plants that the animals eat. If you look at like this Beyond Burger or the Impossible whatever, they've taken all the plantness out of it. It doesn't have the fiber. It doesn't have the phytonutrients. It doesn't have the richness. So they call it plant based. I mean, so Coca-Cola is plant based then so is a Dorito. So I I find that very disingenuous. But the problem is we have a kind of culture where everybody's been um, indoctrinated in this idea that cattle are evil. So everybody sort of gives these things a standing ovation. I think like, you know, Silicon Valley's done it. And all we've done is just minted a whole bunch of new billionaires. That said, I think there's a simultaneous movement that is aware of that and is more interested and has more faith in the complexity and depth of nature. As far as price goes, this really is a question of education, because I would say if you're on a budget and I'm on a budget, I've got three kids. Buying better food is actually better because it's it's really is cheaper. This someone got this idea out there that processed food is cheap. It's not cheap. I go to the grocery store. The stuff that comes in a package is the most expensive. If I buy crackers, if I buy cookies, I mean, for even that's not not even that junk foodie. But the stuff that is packaged that someone else has made is more expensive. Food that you make yourself. If I get stuck in an airport or something, like I, I hate fast food, but if, if you're stuck and you have no choice to eat it, it's not cheap. If I were to take my whole family to McDonald's, it'd be like 65 bucks. I can cook a phenomenal meal. I can buy a great bottle of wine. I can invite you over to, and we will eat a great meal for $65. It might not be ribeye steaks, but I can take a great pork roast um i can take a rump roast there's a lot i can do if you if you want to cook for value this is why quality meat makes a difference is cuz you can just take little bits of it and use it to make a stew or as the base for a soup if you really want to stretch your dollars buy quality ingredients and learn how to cook but that's a tall order most people are just too lazy and that's the real problem that we face
7: yeah yeah i agree and that's the thing we're in a society of convenience and I know even in our business, it's about, you know, trying to get our food to the consumer in the most, uh, you know, practical, practical way that they can, and, you know, consume it quickly or easily and without a lot of preparation, because that's just the mindset of so many people.
2: But that said, and, and you know, I, things and, are changing. Um, I know a guy yeah. in the States who just launched a grass fed, uh, 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 some really c- quality ice cream that comes from grass fed dairy. So, so, you know, slowly things are changing. So I hope it will continue.
0: I'll add to that a little bit here. Um, One of the simplest and most powerful books I've ever read is actually uh, food rules by Michael Pollan. I'm sure you know that one, Mark, a very short book. Like there's like 72 chapters and some of the chapters are like a paragraph long, right? You can read the whole book in about two hours and food rules, uh, a whole bunch of little, uh, I think he refers to them as like things that your grandmother would say, right? Things, oh, just little rules that you you've learned up over the years. And if you followed six of the 72 rules, it, you would go a long ways to eating healthier. Like the one that really hit my family. Um, I, I got my kids to to say it is never, uh, every meal you have to have five colors, right? It was really easy for when my kids were were young. Okay. We need to have five colors in our meal. What do you guys want? We're going to have, you know, uh, hamburgers, potatoes. What else do you guys want? Well, they would say, "Well, how about cucumbers, carrots, and peas?" Right? There's our five colors. I told them that, uh, you know, ketchup and mustard don't count. Um, so <laughs> those colors didn't work. But there's just so many, so many rules in that book that that made us eat healthier. Uh, if anybody's interested, that's a really interesting book to to read as well. So awesome.
1: Um, next, we have Brendan. Are you ready to go, Brendan?
4: Yeah, sure. am. thank you. Uh, Thank you, everybody. And Mark, especially, um, I wanted to circle back real quick to the added flavoring conversation real quick. We got a rule down here in the U S that, um, ironically it's called GRAS is the acronym or G R A S generally recognized as safe. And it's this ongoing list of food additives that if scientists and the people developing them theoretically agree that they are safe, they can be added into foods without FDA review and process. Um, Mark, and you guys can circle back on that. My, my real question was, uh, if Mark, if you could speak to educating us on how to read an ingredient label on the back of a package, are there things that we should avoid? Or can you translate some of the ingredients so that we know what what the impact might be on our health or how our brain is gonna actually perceive those ingredients when we ingest them?
2: Sure. Um, that's a great question. And um, and this is I mean, this is so difficult. I do this full time. All I do is, you know, research this stuff and study it. And I have difficulty reading food labels. And part of that reason is that um, industry and crafty. If you look at something, something says natural flavors. Well, first of all, that word natural, it, it provides this sense of warmth and comfort. and And some nobody really actually thinks about what that means. They just think like, oh, it must come from an apple or something. And that's really not true. So if you if you see the term natural flavors, what that essentially means is that is a um, that's sort of a a bunch of flavor chemicals that have been added that were derived from, quote, natural sources. So if you take something like a strawberry flavor, a flavor of a strawberry in nature, well, it'll have thousands and thousands of compounds in it. The ones that actually drive flavor might be something like 50 compounds that we've we've identified A strawberry flavoring a really cheap one will have like six compounds a better one will have like 20 here's the problem if a if a company wants to get that strawberry flavor to put in like a soft drink or a yogurt well to get them from strawberries is just too expensive because strawberries cost a lot of money so they'll say okay well let's get like 12 of them and make a sort of sort of decent strawberry flavor well we can get one from lawn clippings and we can get one from like a tree bark and we can get one from um sort of a Um, byproduct of the forestry industry and we can get one from a yeast and even one from a genetically modified yeast. So what they do is they find all these so-called natural sources that they pull these chemicals out of and they'll, they'll pull them out using quote natural means like distillation or a centrifuge or burning or something like that. So they say, this is a natural flavor, but it's every, it is, as every bit as artificial in the sense that it is out of context. You've created a strawberry flavor that is now, you know, disembodied from the strawberry. So your brain registers strawberry, but it's not getting any strawberry goodness. So artificial flavors is no better than, um, sorry, natural flavorings, natural flavors, whatever it says, no different than artificial flavor in my view. It gets even more complicated though, because one of the things I wrote about in in the end of craving is a, a family of additives called fat replacers. And these are kind of like the fat equivalent of an artificial sweetener. They create the rich sensation of calories in the mouth, but they deliver just a little dribble, payload of calories to the stomach. Maybe this is a good idea if you've got a really dumb brain, but it's not a good idea if we have smart brains and we have smart brains. Here's what's interesting about the fat replacer industry. The artificial uh, artificial sweetener industry has been big on branding. We know brands like Equal and NutraSweet. They're right on there. Fat replacers saw that artificial sweeteners became controversial, so they lurk in the shadows. So... I'll give you an example of one of them is called simples This was discovered in 1979 by a scientist working for Labats. He tried to turn whey, which is that liquid you get left over when you've you know made your cheese. It's the curd in the whey. He tried to turn whey into a gelatin, and he got this crumbly styrofoam-like substance that tasted a bit like cheesecake or cream cheese. It was sold to NutraSweet, who who marketed at, marketed it as an additive called Simples in 1988. And that's when you start to see some of these low fat salad dressings and low fat mayonnaise and low fat cream cheese. It was in large part because of Simples. How did Simples do this? We don't sense fat through a taste receptor like we do salty, sweet, bitter, umami, sour. We sense it with the trigeminal nerve. We sense it with feel. That's why fat is like slippery in your hand and it is in the mouth too. It's a a feel thing. So the way Simples works, it's called a microparticulated protein. There's just billions of these tiny little balls of protein that mimic the sensation of fat in the mouth. But all your stomach gets is a little bit of protein. Well, here's what's interesting about simplest. When you look on an ingredient label, you never see the word SimpleS. You never see microparticulated protein. It's called something like milk protein or whey protein. And that kind of sounds innocuous. You're like, oh, that sounds like it came from a farm. It's like there's a bit of concentrated whey or something. So they do this with all these fat replacers. It's called having a clean label. And you'll see, if you look at the industry brochure, you'll see this has got a clean label. So there's a fat replacer called cream fiber 7,000. And this is a fat replacer designed for muffins. And on an ingredient panel, it's not going to be called cream fiber 7,000. It's called citrus fiber which I mean, to me, like if I see the word citrus fiber, it's like, that sounds healthy. Like it's going to, you know, be good for my gut or something. So I would love to educate you about this stuff, but it is a world of murk and shadow that is designed not to be understood. Um, It's, it's veiled on purpose. So things like carrageenan, and you've seen a lot of things, it can, it's, that is sort of a cover for a compound that's used in like any number of different ways to achieve any number of different effects in the food industry and it's not just carrageenan there's all but like the xanthan gums and all of them so all i can really say is look for the simplest shortest ingredient label of things that you recognize um often it's intuitive um often you can tell by the amount of packaging or how it looks sometimes you can't but shorter is better and Um, it's not that I'm anti-science. I'm certainly not. I I, I love science. I participate in it. But these longer sounding words um, are things to be wary of. And and I wish I could give you more detail than that. But the detail has been intentionally obscured by the industry.
0: Yeah, reading labels just blows me away nowadays because you don't have a clue what's actually in it. It, it, They misguide us so much. And I just want to break it all down and tell me um in uh, Michael Pollan's book there about the omnivore's dilemma he talks about you standing around the grocery cart now trying to read the the labels and figuring out what's what in there is going to kill you. Um it's just an amazing uh dilemma that we've been in now because they ca- they can't describe they can't tell you exactly what's in there because they get away with it they work around the system to to avoid what's actually in there that drives me nuts now i don't know i don't know how to solve that but i i'm frustrated by it
2: and, and you'd be amazed at, at what you're actually consuming if you think for example if you go to tim hortons and you get a hot chocolate and they put that cream topping you think it's whipped cream. It's it's actually not whipped cream. If you look at the ingredients for that, um, there's no whipped cream in there. There's there's a little bit of milk powder um, and there's every I mean, it's, it's like, like 20 different words long. Like it's, it reads like a Ph.D. Um, and it's, it's all over the place. Um, it's designed to fool your brain and they're getting awfully good at it.
1: I have a question on exactly this. So one of the things that I've said for a long time is people will ask me, well, what type of eggs do you buy when you go in the grocery store? And I honestly, as a farmer, I know what the labels are supposed to mean. I get it, but I go and I'm like, I have no idea which eggs to buy because free range versus omega-3 added. And actually that's the question that I have is, um, in your book, the end of craving, you talk about the vitamins that have been added to flour. And now I see, you know, there's a lot of omega-3 added to eggs. And so are we getting to that point where, okay, I'm buying eggs, eggs are, good for me that's one thing it's a a natural product but is are we getting to a point where even the eggs that we eat because they have added vitamins or fatty acids in this case you know is is that an issue or do you see that as being an issue going down the road
2: well eggs typically like um a normal kind of egg from a chicken that's been eating the stuffed chickens supposed to eat will have omega threes in it. So that's less egregious. I mean, if you look at the, the vitamins we're adding to to flour, did they say, Oh, we're, we're replacing what's been lost in processing. That's not true. They're not replacing it. It's, it's, it's a totally different nutrient profile. I would just rather people fed birds more whole ingredients than just these sort of nutritional additives. Um, And I wish, I wish they would do that. I'm lucky enough that I can buy eggs, I think it's from a group of like a Mennonite cooperative, and it says that they're on grass uh, and they have a richer looking yolk. So I think that's a better alternative. The best, of course, is if you know a farmer, you can get them direct. That is the best, but not everybody can do that.
0: Anything to add there, Steve? Yeah, I'm actually going to add to a comment in the chat right now about how why does Amber Kenyon have to buy eggs? One, uh, we had some chickens for quite a few years, we've had a few chickens. Uh, predators seem to have uh, got them (laughs) slowly they disappeared we actually moved and we left the chickens where we are at our other place and uh, because our dogs were no longer there we slowly lost all of our chickens due to predators and trying to keep a dozen chickens over the winter when you don't live there is quite difficult so now all of a sudden we have uh, chickens in our laundry room And uh, this is not like my wife said it would be a good idea and I don't think it's a good idea, but we do have chickens in our laundry room right now. So uh, the idea is if you get them in May, they're not producing eggs until September, October, November. So she wanted to get them early so that we could have eggs for the summer. Um, But yeah, it's proving to be very annoying at night where during the day when the chickens are causing a lot of ruckus in here. so Come
1: on now, your dog is worse. (laughs) he's, he's more noisy than the chickens. Um, that's all we have for questions. And we're actually out of time here, guys, man, this has flown by. Um, I do want to say, Mark, do you have any last statements or anything that you'd like to make anything to encourage people that are going to be listening to the podcast or the people that are attending here today?
2: Um, just uh, keep on doing what you're doing. it's It's great to have this level of interest, great questions and and you know food producing food, I think, is one of the most important things we can do. So the people that have the right values and are committed to doing it the right way, it's incredibly important, and I thank you for what you do. And I thank you all for for having me here, and it's been a great pleasure talking to you all.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Mark, so much. I really appreciate having you here. Uh, don't forget uh, Mark's books, The Dorito Effect, Steak, and the End of Craving. Uh, make sure you go out and uh, get a, get a copy of each one of those. They're, they're great. And I am, I can't wait to go back to Columbia and go back to that place to have that steak again. I, I feel your pain, Mark. I just, oh, I just can't order a steak at the local restaurant here anymore because I just had the best steak in my life. So.
2: I'll come with you.